News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel. And in a minute, you'll be hearing from Professor Christina Greer and reporter Katie Onan about beach drownings, Rikers deaths, and barbecue shootings. Just after we recorded, Mayor Adams and Corrections Commissioner Louis Molina held a press conference at Rikers Island, Katie was there, to announce that over 2,700 weapons and other pieces of contraband have been recovered from Rikers since the end of February. That's a big increase that they credit to improved staffing under this administration. Also noting the slashings and stabbings are down 63%, they say, since March. And assaults on staff resulting in a use of force and use of force incidents are down 30 and 27% compared to the same six-month period last year, which this administration is pointing to as a early sign of success for their approach at Rikers. More on that in just a minute. And then Professor David Bloomfield about the public school budget cuts Mayor Adams wants, the bill to reduce class size he wants Governor Hochul to veto, and much more. One big story to mention before getting to all that, on a 5-4 vote, the Rent Guidelines Board signed off on Tuesday on hikes of up to 3.25% on one-year leases and 5% on two-year leases. After initially floating an increase of as high as 9% over two years, this 5% rise is the biggest since 2013. That's Mayor Mike Bloomberg for the city's 1 million stabilized apartments and the 2 million New Yorkers who live in them. While the mayor effectively controls the board, Adams credited himself for, quote, pushing the increases down, while also saying that. This determination by the Rent Guidelines Board today will unfortunately be a burden to tenants at this difficult time. But he added in the same statement that small landlords are at risk of bankruptcy because of years of no increases at all. It's a lot to balance, but it's noticeable that where Mayor de Blasio credited himself for the board's rent freezes, Mayor Adams is pointing to the board while talking about these hikes. And with that... Let's jump right in. Hi, Katie Honan. Hi, Harry Siegel. How are you both? Good, Chrissy. How are you? Oh, you know, living the dream. Harry, how you doing? Happy belated Father's Day. Thank you. I am living the life. Well, we've got tons to discuss today. And Katie, I wanted to start with you because you'll be with the mayor a little bit later on today at Rikers Island to discuss uh, some of the deaths that continue to happen uh, in the the state's and I think the country's largest jail system. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're expecting from the mayor today when you go to Rikers? Yeah. So um, as you pointed out this year, we've so far far had eight deaths of people in custody. Um, The most recent one was someone at the Bellevue hospital prison. Um, And we don't know what the mayor is going to announce. Obviously once this is out, we'll know, but um, I think a lot of people are hoping for something to be done in terms of what's happening with the people who are incarcerated within the city's jail system, Um, whether it's, you know, 
improvements or at least maybe more information about what's going on. You know, we had two deaths within, I believe it was like 36 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, there's been a lot of movement on, on the, on the proposed borough based jails in terms of construction starting. I, I walked by the one in Manhattan yesterday and I saw that was moving along and, and the one in Kew Gardens in Queens as well. But um, we will see what the mayor wants to, to do to improve things. If there's anything he can do immediately to improve things, we've had a staffing crisis with the Department of Corrections. My colleague Vervain Blau has written a lot about that. Um, just issues with the new DOC commissioner and um, changes he made immediately as soon as he was appointed, you know, firing what kind of changes. He fired, um, you know, someone who's seen as a reformer within the Department of Corrections, um, who was helpful there. So, you know, the mayor has said he supports the new commissioner and, and he believes that he is the right person for that position and, and, and agrees with the changes he's making. But we have a staffing crisis, there's a shortage. I will, you know, as we noted in last week's podcast, the mayor's wanted to hire nearly 600 more correction officers, but that was not included in the budget. Um, so yeah, I think once we're on Rikers Island, we could see what the mayor talks about. And obviously a lot of that stuff will probably come from the questions asked of him. You know, I don't cover this type of stuff that closely, um, but other people hopefully will be there to ask the mayor what is going to happen for people who are incarcerated for for whatever reason within the city's jails. Right. And Harry, I mean, we know that so many people on Rikers Island are, are awaiting trial. Where would you put the mayor on a scale of 1 to 10 in handling Rikers? I mean, this is, it's not an easy crisis to solve. We have seen the mayor sort of watching the dirt bikes, you know, dirt bike demolition. We've had him talking about, you know, how women can stay safer on the subway platform. He's he's all over the place. He's in the Hamptons. He's hanging out with, you know, movie stars. But this is still a crisis that, granted, he inherited. But don't forget, he ran on a platform that said he would decrease crime, he would be humane to a certain extent, but he would also take care of police and corrections officers at the same time. So where would you put him on a scale of 1 to 10 in handling this crisis? I, I put him, like with so many things, all over the place. Uh, with Sliding scale. With the ladies on, on the train, by the way, he said, you know, don't stand anywhere by yourself, which, good luck with that. If a train has just come in, you're the first person down in the station or in lots of other circumstances. And as he's complained that people are saying unfairly portraying the system as dangerous and out of control, pairing that with things like, 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 like women, you need to know better, you know, watch out for yourself and everyone should watch out for themselves. But, but I, I, I think there's a very mixed message there. Similarly at Rikers, you know, the, there was a lot of interest in the feds taking over Rikers not least from the feds, from this receiver they've appointed. Um, and then Adams pushed back really hard on that. He said, I'm going to take responsibility. My team is, we're going to fix this. We're going to turn it around. And that stuff takes some time. This is his second visit today to Rikers, by the way, as mayor. And his first one, notably, he did not meet with any uh, inmates there. He only met with guards. He's clearly trying to get buy-in from the uh, from from their union <clears throat> for some of the changes they want. They have unlimited sick leave, and uh, have really abused that, and that's led to some of the, the problems there. Uh, with this eighth suicide, um, it was an older guy, uh, Albert Dry. You know, I'm reading in the Post today uh, that he'd previously been housed at the, the uh, Eric M. Taylor Center, and while he was there, 
Um, you know, it's been severely understaffed. There's been a surge in slashings and stabbings, according to the Board of Corrections, with one member saying it was so understaffed that most new admissions aren't getting body scans to check for drugs or weapons or anything else. Like, it's been a really big problem. And I think it's really to Eric Adams' credit that he's saying, we can fix this. We can be more competent. We can do better, which is what he's saying about a lot of things. We have to get out of a scarcity mindset. But He's not yet, and we'll see what today's announcement is, uh, shown shown the results. And having a seventh and eighth death, uh, which appear to be an overdose and a suicide, you know, get announced within 36 hours. It appears that the department may be trying to pass the buck on one of those uh, by, by uh, uh, creating a, basically a humanitarian discharge for one of those people, which means that officially he might not get counted as one even though his death clearly came about from his incarceration. So, so, so incomplete too soon to grade um, really to his credit. He's saying, I want to turn this around, but now he's got to go and do it. Right. So I want to shift gears ever so slightly um, because we've got a lot to cover because I want to talk about the mayor and the rent guidelines. I want to talk about Katie, your amazing reporting on some of these drownings and lifeguards. God. I want to talk about the Harlem shooting I want to talk about uh, the sort of train issues and train patrol. But before we get to all of that, I also want to talk about these new COVID restrictions because I'm dealing with some bonkers folks on my timeline uh, because I'm responding to the fact that uh, Broadway is going to go mask optional um, July 1st. And I tweeted something where I was like, I think that's a bad idea. I love going to the theater. I do not want to sit in a non-ventilated properly theater, you know, for two and a half hours next to someone who doesn't have a mask. Katie, I have all the crazies talking about, literally someone said, you can wear your flamingo transgender face diaper, you know, if you want to, or you don't have to. I mean, just wild nonsense from people who are just like, don't go to the theater then, because, you know, I won't be suffocated anymore. Where are we with this mask mandate with Broadway and the city more broadly? There really isn't much. I mean, I, I think the last holdout that I've seen is public transportation. And even that, I mean, day by day, and I ride mm -hmm. the subway every day in the bus or the railroad or wherever I, wherever I'm going, it's fewer people wearing a mask. And um, I did see a lot of, you know, Twitter. That's why Twitter um, gives me a lot of uh, agita mostly <laughs> because anything you tweet becomes right. so politicized and you have obviously a, a large following which means you have a lot of I don't want to say they're all nut jobs because I do like to think of other people's perspectives where it's like look I get it people have COVID fatigue they have restriction fatigue they might think look it's fine the numbers are at a point where I feel it's it's manageable and we don't have to continue restricting us but I do also see that a lot of these people who complain often aren't even in New York mm -hmm. and I've seen a lot of tweets from performers and other people who work in the theater who are not happy about this. I saw one actress said that she was not, they were not consulted, you know, I guess mm -hmm. it's, it's after for the theater. So I don't know what their ruling is on it, but yeah, it's, it's where this is going to be the hard part. I think if we think back to a year ago, I, I remember thinking this time last year, like, ah, oh, by next year, everything will be great, but there's mm -hmm. been obviously COVID variants, but also as a society, it's been difficult for us to adapt to things. And um, it's, I don't know, people have just become so crazed about one way or the other. Right. And I don't know. I mean, I don't call me Phil Cena. I don't really go to the theater. Sorry. Um, oh, I got to um, take you to the theater. So much. You know, like 
once a year for around Christmas. I don't know. Like right. I, like most of New Yorkers, just, you know, I had a TDF membership for a year and I was, I thought I, I had these visions of me like going to the theater once a week, but I just like went home and watched, I'm a, I, I watch films and right. television. Yeah. But, you know, even in the movie theater, I'll admit I take my mask off sometimes and I'm, I got to eat my popcorn. But right. it is, it's, it's very, and I think this, this, it's been a very stressful two plus years, obviously. And everyone has dug their heels in so strong about what they believe is right. And, and a lot of it, you know, for some people, you can find sort a study to back up anything yes. you believe. Anything's on the, on, online. I mean, Harry, you know, I was just talking to a, a friend of mine who's a comedian. And so she's in sort of theater type spaces. Um, but her issue is, you know, she's recovering from breast cancer. So she's yeah. immunocompromised. And I'm trying to think of like, as a political scientist, it's all about collective action. So I may be fine. You know, I may have antibodies or not, or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, you know, or take my mask down for a little bit to eat a little popcorn and then put it back on. But I'm trying to think about my neighbor, the person mm-hmm. next to me who actually needs it. And so when I was on Amtrak this weekend going to see my family, there was a girl in front of me, of course, loud on the phone. She's like, oh my God, yeah, I just tested positive for COVID. So I don't know if I should go to this party. Oh and then God. as I pack up my stuff, to quickly move away from her, because of course she's hacking up a lung, I realized she doesn't even have a mask on. So you are openly, actively COVID positive. You're talking to the conductor face-to-face, and you don't even have the decency to wear a mask, knowing that you're COVID positive. So Harry, like, how are we ever supposed to get around this thing or over this thing if there doesn't seem to be a collective responsibility of people thinking about immunocompromised folks or people who maybe live with people who are unvaxxed because they're children or for whatever reason, they, they're not vaccinated. Chrissy, that's a great question. And the answer, of course, is I wish I knew. I, I think one interesting way to think about all this is how successful mandates are, which the state still has for the, for the trans, for instance. And that's why that's still there uh, as a way of getting people to behave decently. And in the midst of all this COVID fatigue, um, Mayor Adams has clearly taken a we got to get people back. We got to get the city back approach. Um, So, among other things, right, he um, is giving city workers who would not get vaccinated. And then we're finally laid off the last days of the de Blasio administration. One more chance to get the jab and return, he says. Um, It was reported today that he's had precisely zero enforcement of uh, the private sector uh, 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 vaccine requirements from the city. And this week, which I thought was really interesting, uh, Mayor Adams trumpeted that according to his guidelines, the city had gone from high risk back to medium risk. Obviously, as we're saying, like all these tests, testing and numbers, you can get different things from a lot of people are testing positive at home. That isn't generally showing up, but this is a good thing. And he said, we're winning the fight against COVID-19. Because of our collective efforts, we've now made our way through to the other side of this wave, Hugh Jim Morrison. Um, But I would just note that we actually went too high under Eric Adams' guidelines while Eric Adams was mayor. And uh, they said the city should do a bunch of stuff. And he said, look, I'm the decider. I don't care about these guidelines. I don't want to talk about this very much either. So, So it's interesting now when the same guidelines are going in the right direction to see him looking to uh to 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 trumpet that having uh sort of pushed away from it when, when those numbers were going in the wrong direction as we all know this is going to keep going up and down and we just have to figure out some 
reasonable way to, uh, to, to, to behave decently and to have social expectations where, where other people are. And that that's tricky. You know, I've had to go inside a couple bars to use the bathroom and like, you know, they're just packed with people who are out and happy to be out. And I'm not, I'm not particularly looking to judge any of those people or their circumstances. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm not entirely comfortable with that. And I do fear that last thing that, that, that these, Years of, of of mandates and shelter in place and 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 somewhat heavy-handed enforcement that at points has felt absurd, and this includes the masking on very small children, like you know under fives, uh, who by the way are just now eligible to get vaccinated if they want to. Um, the, the 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 this has created a sort of fatigue where people are less willing to just do reasonable things and to think a little beyond themselves uh, about their own behavior, even if they're not as terrible as this uh, girl on the train, who uh, seems like a, you know, oh, people like that are yeah. just bad news. Yeah, I was. I mean, how do you to punch her in the back of the head? I swear, I was like, you are coughing with no mask on, and you literally just shouted out, "I've got COVID." Yeah. People, I, I heard a friend of mine said that she was at some party over Memorial Day weekend and someone was going, stay away from me. I have COVID. It's like, bitch, then leave. Why, then why are you out? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, all of that, people, so to segue, people are out and about, COVID or not. I mean, I'm just assuming that everyone's got COVID and that's why I'm still wearing a mask because I still need to, to go places. But as we think about the city and people coming back into the city and being out on the streets, we now also have these shootings that are happening, not just in New York, in cities across the country. Um, and this past weekend, we had a shooting in Harlem where Darius Lee, who's a rising basketball star at Houston Baptist, I believe, but a son of Harlem, was shot and killed, along with eight other people who were shot. So, Katie, how does this match with the rhetoric of the mayor, who, on the one hand, is saying, this city's crime is out of control, and then also it's like, this is the safest city you want to be. Come on here and spend money and be out and about and like come in these streets. Like, I feel like it's a touch of a mixed message. I get the fact, as her- to Harry's point, the mayor is concerned about the dollars and cents. We cannot have a right. city where people are not spending money, where they're not coming to visit. We do rely on tourism. We do need tourists to come during the summer, as annoying as they may be, walking slowly on the sidewalk and standing in the middle of the sidewalk like they're, you know, middle schoolers at <laughs> in between class breaks. But... On the one hand, we have this need for people to be out and about so that we can have an economic vitality of the city. But also, folks are definitely feeling quite concerned because of these shootings and, sadly, sometimes these deaths. Yeah, and, and I I think it is a mixed message because that also is the reality of things, right? You know, um, you want to get people back into the city. You want to get people back to tourist areas, you know, you want them in Times Square, you want them staying in hotels, you want them going to Broadway shows, masks or not. Um, but there are still serious crime issues, and maybe that affects certain neighborhoods more than others. Um, and, and that's where the mayor is trying to tamp things down. But I, you know, I also think that um this the perception, you know, I had heard this during COVID. Um, the shots of an empty Times Square, which was a reality, although I I went to Times Square during peak COVID and there were always people there to some degree, but um, I think the concern is this perception of, is New York City a hellscape? Is it horrible? Do you not want to go here? All this kind of stuff. There are lots of ways. It's a big city. There's lots of things that could happen. Um, but the mayor has to, I guess, continue targeted policing, try to get guns off the street, try to get guns out of the hands of, of anyone who shouldn't have them, which is most people. And 
figure out, um, you know, he also, he talks about getting the root of crime, you know, and in certain, you know, if there's certain precincts, precincts with a high concentration of crime, figuring out what else do communities need? You know, that goes into the argument for the defund of the police movement of we can redirect a lot of this money to the root causes of what's causing crime and figure out what we can do to actually help people. Harry, what are your thoughts on uh, the shootings and how the mayor is responding? I mean, nine people were shot. Um, you know, this 21-year-old yeah. Very kid easily. who, you know, wanted to be a Nick, had a scholarship, and curse was just, his dad says, you know, just what seems like a good kid who's going out to have a nice time. On a summer barbecue, he's dead. Eight other people are shot and traumatized. Like, it, it's really bad. And just speaking of the defund stuff and how hard a lot of this is to deal with, this was at a barbecue that uh, this Harlem guy, uh, Rich Reimer, um, actual name Troy Reimer. So so he does have the, the, the true last name Reimer. <laughs> the love. Uh, but, but he was hosting. And... He had an initial plan for this. He put it out on the socials. Uh, the police showed up in some numbers. I don't know what they knew to break this up. And he put out on Instagram, new location, DM me. Um, and then from the initial reports, like two gangs started shooting at each other at this new location. And all of these innocent people who were just out to have a nice time got caught in that crossfire. So I, I went and listened to uh, some, some Rich Reimer tracks. You know, the first thing I listened to, he's got a big shout out to, uh, to Big L, who came up on this podcast a few weeks ago. He's a super talented guy. But everything he's rhyming about, he, it, Rich Reimer did an Instagram saying, you know, my thoughts and prayers are with this young, young man and his family. I'm so sorry about this, but everything he, he is rapping about is, uh, is is who's who's representing and who, who uh, you know who's shooting who's carrying gun gestures all that stuff so that's a whole conversation i'm not trying to get into weird moral scare stuff but it does seem very complicated with what you allow for where you want to enforce how preemptive you want the police to be in situations where there might be trouble but they're also just like a bunch of young people who are just looking to have a nice time and be out and mingle with each other, you know, on a beautiful summer day or, or night. The shooting happened, happened, I believe, you know, a little later. But th these things are really tough. And as this is happening, it's not that the mayor needs to show up at every crime scene. But as Katie mentioned to me when we were chatting earlier, right, that this is, well, you know, he's in the Hamptons and, you know, hanging out with, with actually other rapper friends and with crypto bros and, and, and doing his thing. Influ Don't forget the influencers. Oh, no. Think influencers. <laughs> no, I think she's just an influencer. She got a lot of hate for testing positive for COVID and then going to the Hamptons right after. But that's, that's, we, we don't need to talk about her. Wait, which year are we not talking about? Ch Charnis, the, the, what the <sighs> wife of one I get. Yeah. So that's what I, you know, I was like, why do I know this person? It's like, Oh, because I have toxic Instagram follows. Oh, but but I, I I'm 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 stumped. Like you 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 don't want to police every barbecue. Obviously, you also don't want to you know allow for circumstances and setups where you're sort of anticipating things could really pop off and and people could be caught in that crossfire. And 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 you know the the, the challenge is on Mayor Adams now. Got elected saying he was going to fairly deal with all this to 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 figure out how. And obviously, 
I think all of us wish him well. All of us understand that the, the guns in New York and the illegal guns are part of that issue, that this could get a lot tougher once the Supreme Court weighs in there. But it's, it's plenty tough to start with. Um, it, it's just it's just heartbreaking again and again and again. And it is pretty wild that nine people getting shot and like, you know, a, a young guy who is not a, in any sense a street life guy, not that those people, you know, their, their lives don't matter. But 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 but, uh, you know, this is going to be a, a two day story. And then the, the family's going to remember. Uh, you know, friends are going to remember, but we're just going to be on to the uh, to the next thing. I'm, I'm just a little sad and dispirited thinking about it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, I mean, so I got a lot of feedback from last week about us ending on a positive note. So before we do that, you know, Katie, I've been really bothered by these drownings largely because, you know, when I was a kid, I took swim lessons. I'm I'm not the best swimmer. I'm no Michael Phelps by any stretch of the imagination. I, I feel like I could take care of myself in the water. I don't know if I could take, um, take care of anybody else if I were in the ocean. I also only go into the ocean kind of like hip, like waist deep, usually just to, yeah. to go to the bathroom really quickly and then go back to the shore and bathe. But like... I've been so bothered by this because there's so many people who don't have basic swim skills coupled with, it seems as though there's this, we keep calling it a lifeguard shortage, but it's deeper than that because it doesn't seem as though we're funding programs to get people into lifeguard programs. And then, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you've written really, really wonderful stuff about this. It also seems as though the city is kind of circumventing certain responsibility because with some of these drownings that have happened, say at like 6.30 p.m., it's still light out, but they're like, well, I mean, the lifeguard's off duty at six, so you're swimming at your own risk. And basically, if you drown, like we're not responsible. So it felt a little callous reading certain stories about some of these tragic deaths. And the city's response was largely like, well, we weren't on duty, so that that's on you. Where are we with kind of the lifeguard, quote unquote, shortage and summer safety, not just in pools, but especially in oceans, because we have so many different fantastic beaches in the city. But it seems as though these drownings are happening. I mean, we had basically two last week and two the week before. Right. I mean, I do want to point out that the two that were in Jamaica Bay, that's a restricted area. No one's supposed to go in there. There's never any lifeguards there. Yeah. But that's, it's just tragic. And you have to understand, like, you know, it's hot. People want to cool off in the water. Mm -hmm. The two most recent drownings in Rockaway Beach, um, it's it's very complicated because it was on beaches that are closed for a jetty project. So there's open to sunbathing close to the ocean. Mm. And then I, I believe the it was simultaneous. And there was actually other drowning incidents, but the people were rescued. But the two fatalities um, happened simultaneously about 10 blocks apart. And uh, the second victim, I, I haven't seen identified yet, but the first one was a 16-year-old girl from the Bronx, first time at the beach. Her father was said, you know, don't go. And she said, no, I want to go with my friends. And, you know, the Daily News had a great story speaking to her father and her friends. And it's just, it's really heartbreaking because they took the ferry down which ends at Beach 108th Street, that beach is closed. They said they were confused as to where they could go. The lifeguard told them, go walk about, you know, 10 blocks up to 116th. The beaches are open past there. But they kept seeing other people in the water, so they just presumed they could go into. 
Um, I believe that the drowning happened just around 6 p.m., right? But, you know, I say, look, nobody goes into the water at 6.01 and immediately drowns. If you're drowning at around 6 p.m., you're likely had already been in the water when the lifeguards technically were on duty, if they had been on duty. Um, but this speaks to a larger issue that New York Magazine wrote a really big investigative piece in 2020, but this had been covered. The head of the lifeguard supervisor is Peter Sign. It's been covered for years. He's been in charge of the beaches and the pools for 40 years, charge, in charge of lifeguards. Um, there was a DOI report that basically they made more than a dozen recommendations to improve the lifeguard school and the lifeguard training. None of them had been done by Memorial Day. And look, because I grew up in Rockaway and I know many, many lifeguards, I've for my most of my life have been hearing about what some people call is a mafia-like union. Mm-hmm. where they retaliate against people who, you know, the main, the person that gets quoted in all the stories is Janet Fash, who I've known for years. She didn't take the lifeguard test this year, but she's been a longtime supervisor. And she has been complaining about issues with the lifeguard, that they're not putting qualified guards down at the beach. And in Rockaway Beach, it's the most dangerous beach that the city has. You know, you can't compare a pool to Orchard Beach to Rockaway mm-hmm. Beach. It's three mm-hmm. different scenarios of what to lifeguard. That you don't have the rip currents at Orchard Beach or at Coney Island that you do in Rockaway. The, the water is incredibly rough and tricky, and that's the issue. And now, you know, I've heard from multiple lifeguards that they were failing long time. You know, lifeguards with thirty years experience failing them on the swim test. Um, they've complained that it's not transparent, that you don't know what your time is. You have to swim four hundred fifty yards in six minutes forty seconds to be at the beach, seven minutes forty to be at the pool. They just tell you you failed. It's all these issues, but that's been well documented, mm-hmm. and it is, um, you know, lifeguards say that they think that they're purposefully screwing us over at the beach, whether it's a tactic to whatever the the union tactic is, it's frightening. You know, I spoke to a lifeguard who was there um, Friday during those drownings and, you know, tried to go in. One thing that I asked Mayor Adams if they would do, which I've heard from multiple lifeguards, you know, it's 2022. Lifeguards sitting in a chair do not have two-way radios. To signal, they use fucking hand signals yeah they go they whistle they tap their head what like respectfully what the fuck is that sorry Mm -hmm. you know like that's insane they don't have whistle they don't have two-way radios if you're at when you're at rockway you'll notice the people who have atvs to get around faster it's the police it's the park enforcement police and it's the people picking up trash lifeguards don't so if there's a drowning 10 blocks away they have to run there on the there's, sand. On the sand. There's no coordination with the fire department, which in the case of Friday's drownings, they're the ones that did what ultimately just became a rescue operation. It wasn't it, a recovery operation. It wasn't search and rescue. So this is the complaints that I've heard from people for years. You know, and then you think, okay, systemically, how many pool, how many city schools have pools that aren't open? Mm-hmm. I, I've asked. I'm hopefully get that answer. This is an issue. There's really not look, even growing up in Rockaway. We did not have a, there was one pool in Far Rockaway High School that was not open to a lot of people. The the other large high school, Beach Channel High School, in the 1970s, and this is a true story, they reversed the dimensions of the pool and they built it, they call it a bathtub. So you mean to tell me that you have a peninsula that has however many miles of beaches. And when I was growing up, there was just one pool. They built another pool at the YMCA, which was built, I don't know, I was, in, I was out of college when they built it. So this is the issue that's, again, you have, 
coastal people who don't even have access to a pool to learn how to swim? Mm. How do you teach other people to swim when you're canceling learn to swim programs? How many YMCAs are there? That's not a ton. You know, there's not a lot of pools in the city. And then even when there are pools, they're not open. So it's just, it's this huge systemic issue. The union isn't, you know, trying to get a hold of anyone at DC 37, which the two locals that represent lifeguards are, it's all of a sudden they don't want to talk to a reporter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a real concern. And I'll leave you, I mean, the other kind of metaphorical thing, right? The lifeguard headquarters in Rockaway is at the Beach 106 shack. There are no windows facing the beach. Tell me what kind of metaphor that is. You're supposed to be in charge of the lifeguards. Wow. You, Woody, Woody, observing shorefront wow. parkway. That is the sort of, you know, it's the metaphorical issue of what's going on. What, the stuff I've heard, just the retaliation, it's crazy. And, you know, look up Janet Fash. I mean, we should we should have her on the podcast. But she is just so knowledgeable. They had a union trial. People have come forward about sexual harassment, concerns, EEO complaints. Right. It goes into a black hole. I've tried. You request this stuff. It's hard to get. So that's the issue. And sure, you could say it's the summer. It's just how many months out of the year. But it's a concern. And, you know, you, you speak to lifeguards. You have a young kid who's a lifeguard, 16, 17, 18 years old, and they're watching another 16-year-old get pulled out of the ocean. Right. That does, you know, what? Right. do they offer counseling? Service? No, they don't. They're not. It's really traumatic for people to, to, to see someone just completely drop like that and that's the concern. And, you know, I asked Mayor Adams these questions and he said, oh, these are great ideas. Right. I don't know why I have to bring them to him, but why don't they have coordination with with uh, the fire department? Look, you go to a place like Huntington Beach. I mean, I've never been there, but I hear the search and rescue is with the fire department. Some, you know, even I talked to a Jones Beach lifeguard. It was like if someone said it, it was like being in a dysfunctional family your whole life and then going to another family and seeing, oh, Oh, this is how this is what this is how it's behave. like. She says, yeah, when it's hot, we just stay an extra hour or two. Yeah, we get a full equipment. Yeah, we get paid for training. Yeah, we have an open ocean swim because you have to be able to swim in the ocean and everyone can go to it. Our union responds to us. We have a complaint. You know, these are normal things that you just do not have within the city lifeguard system. In in part because of the the lifeguard union, and they you know they have full time guards who work at the pools, and they dole these jobs out like favors. And it's you know it's very complicated and it's dangerous because you know I, growing up by the beach, I'm terrified of the ocean. I go in it, but I'm not a very strong swimmer. But you know I'm 36 and a half years old, and it is still ingrained in my head that I am not going into the ocean without a lifeguard present mm -hmm. because anything can happen, and you know you you panic, kids mm -hmm. panic. And I, it was really heartbreaking reading that daily news story because this was a girl who just wanted to do what everyone. And look, I'll end on this. You know, when the city says, well, the beaches were closed, the mayor talks a lot about emotional intelligence. Shouldn't part of that be anticipating people's behavior? Right. It's right. 90 degrees. It doesn't get dark until 830. Yes, it's 90 degrees. Okay, a stretch of beaches closed for some jetty prod project, but that's where the ferry lets out. Right. And the water does, you can't, you can't really, it's hard to observe a riptide. You learn by, you know, lifeguards have told me what to look for and you learn by living there, but it's not that easy to look. And it takes two seconds for you to panic and start flailing. And that's how people drown. So it's like, anticipate that, you know, I've heard lifeguards say, why don't we have when it's really hot, top lifeguards patrolling the beach from six to eight, whistling people out. Or just, you know, guarding things. Why don't they have more people? You, and, and there's large other, there's other chunks of the beach that are going to be closed throughout the summer for this jetty project. So it's just going to be like a rolling beach closure going west. And that's sort of the, the issue. So um, 
that, the, yeah, that's the problem. It's, it's so depressing. I always say growing up, you know, the one sound you do not want to hear by the beach is helicopters. Cause that usually means mm-hmm. as some, mm-hmm. someone went in the ocean and did not come out and that mm-hmm. it's just horrible. So that is the problem. And, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of the people I spoke to, they said, it's only going to get worse. Um, right now we have the, the number I got, they try to have 1500 lifeguards, but the number that the, that Parks Department gave me that I put in my story, about 520, I think. And obviously, yeah, between now and July 4th, which is a final day, and the pools don't open until June 28th, you know, there's more time, but it's a problem. And yeah. yeah. The other thing I'll say about the union, you know, and people say, well, it's a union. Can't you vote? This is what they this is what they do. This is what money guards tell me. Uh, um, you know, when you're, you're a seasonal lifeguard, so you pay your dues from May to September, the union bylaws say you need to have three meetings a year. They hold the meetings in, you know, January, February, and March. So if you're a summer lifeguard and you say, I want to go to a union meeting and I want to vote, they say, oh, I'm sorry, you're not an active union member. This is, all, you know, and it's to, to continue to have the power. And, you know, mm-hmm. does Peter Stein pass the lifeguard test? He's technically supposed to. All this. So this is, it's, it's really yeah, an issue. That's and a good question. Yeah. And there's been reporting on this and, you know, there have been people who try to improve things, but... Then they can't, you know, the only power they have is where they distribute lifeguards um, and, and you know, it, who gets to pass it. So when you're passing someone with 30 years on who swims daily throughout the winter, when you're failing them, is that true? Or, you know, it's, it's complicated. So so I know the mayor has said that, that look, there's a national shortage of, of, of lifeguards. And you're saying that there are all these parts of this that, in fact... Uh, the city has some control over. Is there some parallel here with what he's trying to deal with at Rikers in terms of having the like powerful union and workforce rules that are making it hard for him to, and previous mayors, by the way, to to to, to get to a more sensible reform? And is this leading to a thing where where we have unnecessary deaths that that that, that just sort of become like many traffic accidents, so called? Uh, you know, oh, that's just how things are when it doesn't have to happen. Yeah, I mean, I would, it, it is totally different scenarios, obviously. But I, I think, yeah, it could be issues with how they're figuring things out. And and I think the difference is what you see in, in the corrections union is a lot of um, issues coming from their actual members, sick out, you know, people not coming to work. And I, I think at least with the lifeguards I've spoken to, it, it actually is more with their own union management and leadership, which they don't even have access to. They don't, they can't really call their union president and say, Hey, I'm concerned about this. There's none of that. So that's, um, but yeah, it's, it it makes me nervous to think of what the rest of the summer could bring knowing what we've already experienced before July 4th. So speaking of uh, summer, and I think our happy thought just, just for time management is simply going to have to be that uh, school's out as of Monday very weird that the last day is Monday for the summer. Children are celebrating. Teachers are taking a breath. And joining us right now to talk about this is uh, CUNY Professor of Educational Leadership, Law and Policy, David Bloomfield. Let's jump right in. <laughs> David, thank you for uh, for joining us. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. I hope you're OK, too. Uh, man, I, I'm just trying to get to the end of this school year with my kids, which insanely is on is on a Monday this year. 
which is hurting my brain just to think about. Uh, I'm teaching a course at CCNY, and for some reason, the calendar goes to July 5th. So uh, we're all living in the same world. Oh, boy. Um, So I, I have two big things I was hoping you could break down as we get to the end of this first school year, in part under the Adams administration, uh, one thing at the city level and one thing at the state. Let's, let's start with the city. So we have this budget deal, which has a cut of at least $210 million. Uh, obviously, inflation diminishing the value of the remaining billions. Mayor Adams says this is not a cut since student funding remains constant. Uh, and the, the dollars are going down because enrollment is projected to decline, continuing a trend of declining enrollment that preceded the pandemic. So what do you make of that argument? And is the city at risk of creating a decline cycle where diminished funding accelerates diminishing enrollment and leads to further diminishment of spending and enrollment and back and forth and back and forth? Uh, I, your leading question <laughs> leads me to agree with all of those points. Uh, Mayor Adams, uh, having citywide responsibilities, may think that $210 million is a drop in the bucket, and it is a layperson's uh, intuitive response to lower enrollment to say, I can save some money. But if you're a school principal, even if you have a dozen, maybe a couple of dozen fewer kids, they're spread out over different classrooms and different grades. You still have to have a teacher, uh, you know, maybe it'll be a class size, heaven forfend, of 24 instead of 28. But there's a thing called breakage. Uh, I don't know if your audience is familiar with the term, but it's a great term. It means that you kind of need a class. You can't have 48 kids in a class. Uh, and, and so you're going to have to have two classes and have two teachers, uh, no matter what the uh, critical mass is. And, and so principals need to have the same number of teachers that they're going to, that they had last year. They're going to need more counselors uh, that was the the promise uh, because of the needs of the students. Uh, we need our teachers. We need school librarians. There's an article in Chalkbeat today about the the withering population of school librarians and school libraries. Um, we all of the same needs and more exist that we had before the pandemic. Even though there's been a, a small, an eight percent reduction in the enrollment, uh, so I understand Adam's thinking. I don't know why the city council uh, went along with his with his thinking. Uh, they're the people who really understand what's going on in the schools in their districts. Uh, they have been pilloried by the public for going along with the Adams administration approach. Uh, and, and you know, poor David Banks. Uh, David Banks, the, the new chancellor, uh, is a friend of the mayor's, uh, a supporter of the mayor's, uh, but he also needs to be an advocate for the parents, the teachers, and the students in the New York City public schools. And he's been silent. 
I, I think uh, this has put him in a really bad situation. It's a it's a situation of the incredibly shrinking chancellor. Uh, the best he can come up with right now seems to be uh, having more programs for the 4% of students in gifted and talented programs to have a uh, vague suggestion for new uh, digital schools for some infinitesimal population. Uh, and uh, he really has to take care of, of the whole family. And uh, right now he's disappeared. Adams and, and the city council have taken the long approach. And as you indicated, uh, this is a time to show those parents who have left the system, maybe even left the city, uh, that we are alive and recovering, if not well, and that our schools are strong and should be a magnet for families and, and not some uh, toxic reality that drives people into the arms of, of religious schools, independent private schools, charter schools, or the suburbs. So you said that $210 million could be seen as a drop in the bucket. Just to help our listeners out there, how big a bucket are we talking about? Uh, well, the, uh, the Department of Education is about a third of the budget of, of tens of billions of dollars. Uh, you probably have the, the number better than I do for the city budget. But we're talking about billions of dollars. Uh, $210 million could certainly be found. And remember that many of the city council members ran on a platform to reduce police spending and move that to school uses. Uh, we haven't really heard from those city council members uh, recently, except for their profound regret in voting for the, the budget, except for a, a few half a dozen uh, Democratic Socialist members of the council who had the guts of the, to uh, vote against the speaker. So it's about $38 billion, I believe, in this new budget. And that's not counting the $20 billion over five years capital budget. So so this, this is a lot of money. Um, can you talk for a minute? Yeah, you, you brought up these digital schools. And after the misery of the, the Zoom school experience, it boggles my mind to think this is where we're headed toward now. Uh, but, but I'm hoping you, you can go back over the pandemic for a minute. And as things seem to be knock on wood, approaching a, a new normal and about the, the additional educational and other needs that created and what the DOE is or is not doing to address those? <laughs> I was just on a, uh, on a Zoom uh, new school uh, digital learning uh, seminar, webinar. Uh, so I guess maybe that it, it was on digital learning and here we are in a webinar. So I think that that may uh, be an indication of our future. But, but to a person, the principals on that webinar didn't see a, a digitized future for the New York City public schools. They talked about relationships. They talked about in-person learning. You know, while I was watching it, I was also thinking we need in-person uh, professional collaboration. Uh, it's it's not only that that digital environments are isolating for students, they're isolating for teachers as well. Uh, so so I, I think we need to uh, understand 
that, as his principle said, it's about relationships. And learning is about relationships and, and moving forward in a situation where we do have the counselors, we do have the social workers, we do have the smaller class sizes, and that we're back in school for the most part using digital tools in school to bring the world to the classroom. Uh, but but the inequities involved, the the lack of engagement involved in an all digital learning environment uh, is is fraught with with problems that uh, aren't going to be solved by what David Banks has in mind for uh, a, I don't know at this point maybe a few dozen uh, performative students to say that they love the digital environment. So one more in the city before we get to the state for a minute. Two parts here. First off, we did not cut the budget for the public schools, says Eric Adams. Let's be honest. We reallocated the money based on the uh, student population. And some of the cuts are getting softened for now, at least, by this federal aid we've gotten because of the pandemic that won't recur what's wrong with how he is uh framing this and then specifically for principals can you talk about the sort of decisions they have to make now about teachers and staff and by the way what happens to those teachers these are union workers they're not going to get fired if a principal has to remove a teacher and how, how they get there right so uh under the bloomberg administration uh two things happened uh one that principals were given responsibility for their budgets. And they have a lot of discretion about how to move the money around in their, in their budgets. Most of that money is teacher salaries, about 90%. Uh, it's the, the money that they get is based on something called fair student funding. It's a backpack of money, if you will, that rides with the student. Different students come carrying different size backpacks, uh, uh, students with special needs, uh, ENL, English as a new language students, uh, have larger backpacks than your general ed student. Um, but everybody understands that that system is broken, that uh, Bloomberg sold, as he did with many matters, a, a bill of goods that somehow uh, a, a, a school budget is based solely on the number of kids and the type of kids you have. But that totally disregards the fixed cost, as I described before, of just running a school. And it's not based on a, a body count. And, and so the, the problem is that, that, that Adams is working under an open, outmoded system that everybody agrees is, is broken, the fair student funding formula. If you remember, uh, Adams lost a vote on the panel for, uh, for educational policy, the, the PEP, the Board of Education, when he has a majority of the PEP because the majority of the PEP declined to support moving the money to schools under the current fair student funding formula. And put well, a pin in that for one second, listeners, because we're going to come back to the PEP when we get to Albany. So uh, so 
even his pep objected. And, you know, he basically uh, begged to uh, have the pep support the current budgetary allocation just because this money had to get shoveled out to the schools, uh, but promised to reconfigure the formula. So the, the situation that we're in now is driven by the fair student funding formula that even the chancellor has disowned. And it's because of fair student funding that and, and a per pupil count that there's this $210 million cut. But that's money that could be shoveled back into the DOE. Would it be so terrible if you got 101% of your fair student funding allocation and could sh save a teacher salary? Uh, please, I, you know, I feel like uh, if I were a rich man, if I had full funding, yaddy, yaddy, yaddy. Digga, digga, diddle, daddle, dum. <laughs> So, so let, let's let's go on that note to Albany for a minute. It's been an interesting year. So, so basically, Albany passed extended mayoral control by two years. Uh, that means Eric Adams and the city will have to go back to Albany before he's up for election again to talk about that. They also mayoral control is tricky because the PEP which the mayor appoints members to most of, uh, is, is actually the governing body of, of the, the, uh, the, the DOE. Um, and as I understand it, this bill that is on Kathy Hochul's desk now, but hasn't passed, makes it a little tougher for the mayor, you know, is the one person who can be held politically responsible to tell the pep what to do. For instance, he can't fire members without cause, like if they vote against him, as they just did, which is a really unique thing. At the same time, the legislature passed a separate bill that would lower class sizes by law. Adams has come out against that, in effect, saying that this would be an unfunded mandate, that if you're going to reduce class size and have to have more teachers, maybe those aren't going to be the best teachers. And at the least, You'd have to give me more money to do that, which which this bill does not. So what's happening here between Albany and the mayor? And 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 what do you make of these uh of, of these new laws and new terms for the city? Right. So a lot to unpack. First of all, the PEP is not the governing body of the school system. It is a vestigial entity that has policy role and, and some role in contracts that, that have been added. But mayoral control is really through the chancellor and, and the old Board of Education, which was a governing body before 2002, uh, isn't the same as the PEP. The PEP just, it, it, and it's a rubber stamp. It's less than a rubber stamp, it goes the joke, because it doesn't even make an impression. So we, we see that time and but time it, it again. Just, it just busted up the mayor on a couple of things, which was interesting and newsworthy for that reason, right? Right, right. But um, even then, it was a, a mere bump in the road at, for the mayor. And, and you know, the PEP came around, and he appointed a few new members. So what happened in Albany regarding mayoral control was basically the the legislature showing some muscle to the mayor 
and to the governor saying, you proposed a four-year extension beyond the mayor's current term. We're going to make them come back two years from now. We're going to circumscribe the types of people he can appoint to the PEP because we're going to have some required parent members be his appointee. It can't be just anybody. So it'll be a parent who totally agrees with him instead of a non-parent who totally agrees with him, because that's going to be the deal in terms of appointment. It's going to be even more important, not only for the mayor, but for the other appointing authorities, like the borough presidents, to now appoint potted plants to the PEP, because since they're not going to be able to remove them for a year, they have to make sure that they are aligned with that appointing person's policies or else they become rogues, as occurred, by the way, uh, in the early 90s when David Dinkins appointees, uh, when actually it wasn't Dinkins appointees, it was a, a few borough president appointees, uh, Staten Island, uh, Queens in particular, the Bronx, when these uh, appointees just kind of went on their off on their own and voted any way they wanted. They they weren't accountable to anyone anymore except themselves. Right. Uh, and, and so I'm a little worried that what's going to happen isn't so much that these newly independent members are going to make good decisions. I'm worried that they're going to make personal decisions. And and you know that's not necessarily good for the families who have their children enrolled in our schools. And what do you think of this bill to reduce uh, class size? I, I think it's a good idea because the uh, mayor has uh, three mayors under mayoral control, Bloomberg, de Blasio, and, and now Adams, have uh, shown no interest in reducing class size. They're, they're, they're money people. And, and, and they're concerned that it's going to cost them more money because more teachers means more money. So uh, I, I think if we can reduce class size significantly, significantly and keep those smaller class size for years, children will benefit. One year of, a, of lower class size doesn't help anyone and, and is expensive. But if you have a, a strong commitment to lower class size across grade levels for many years so that kids experience smaller classes year by year in their school career, then I think it's going to have some impact. My understanding is that the research shows that lower class sizes have the most significant results in lower grades and that it's not as clear that they have the same benefits in junior high school and high school. Is that right? But we also have lower class sizes in, in junior high and high school anyway, particularly in high school. Some number of kids kind of a trip out um, and, and you have more classes because of the subject areas and, and the electives. So uh, I'm, I'm willing to go along with the idea that, that lower class sizes should be uh, across the board. Everybody will, uh, 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 even if. Yeah, it seems to me that that we're going to be able to achieve those lower class sizes in the out years in, in the in the later grades. Anyway, we we're pro we may be there already. Um, so let's 
give this legislation a try. It can be tweaked, but uh, it, it forces the mayor to spend some money where it counts, which is on children's learning, um, not on a bunch of uh, campaign geared uh, policies like a digital school. So, so Eric Adams and David Banks are both products of New York's public school system. You know, a Adams likes to talk about my police and my schools and my teachers uh, for better and for worse, in my view. I think there's a an arrogance to that in certain ways and, and also a, a form of ownership, I think, is healthy for, for holding him accountable. So, so it's unfair to ask you to speak for anyone else. But that said, like, what is it they don't see? or they don't get that makes them comfortable cutting. And it does appear to me at least to be a cut education in the midst of this for Adams and, and banks at least being being silent about that. I, I think the, the problem that the mayor has, you know, the, the by law uh, and by history, the city needs to balance it, but its budget. Adams in the moment was being pressured for more cops and more affordable housing. So I think he put those priorities ahead of the schools. I, I think it was a political decision. Uh, it's hard to govern Mayor Adams. And, and I think the city council too realized that it's hard to govern and they were willing to acquiesce to the speaker who acquiesced to the mayor for uh, understandable political reasons. And, and now they're trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, which they can because the approval of, of the city budget by the city council uh, uh, only means that for a moment, we have a, a balanced budget document that they can go to the financial markets with and say, look, we're okay, buy bonds. Uh, the minute after the, the ink is almost dry, the mayor starts moving money around as, as he must because the budget is, is really quite a fluid document based on revenue uh, and, and expenses, which are always changing. So they're gonna, I, I think they're gonna find the money uh, but it also will take public pressure for them to find that money in other departments and move it into uh, the schools. And this is a bit of a footnote, but you brought up the borough president's appointees to the PEP before. And the borough presidents are vestiges of the Board of Estimate, which was found unconstitutional and all this stuff. We got a new city charter. And there's a whole story about friend of Donald Trump, Andy Stein, that goes with that. <laughs> but part of it is that... Uh, the, we have this budget dance and the council is very involved in the dance. But as soon as the dance is done and then you've got the whole year, it's, it's the mayor. It's the mayor actually sending the checks out, allocating the funds and deciding what to do with them. And David Dinkins didn't fully realize that and Rudy Giuliani did. And and subsequent mayors have noted that example. It gives them a tremendous amount of power. Uh, David, there's so much to cover here, but I'm hoping for an ending note that you can talk for a minute. You can explain for a minute for, for listeners who are interested but haven't been through it. What just happened with these new high school admissions that de Blasio set up and the Adams administration 
has kept, at least for now, one. Two, given all of the issues with the pandemic, with delayed learning, with emotional needs, and so on, uh, what should be and is happening over this summer and beyond, just to uh, uh, give a sense of where we're going from here? So um, there was a lot of pressure on de Blasio for eight years um, to revise uh, specialized high school admissions. We really have two sets of specialized high schools. One are the, the, the big three, really the big eight uh, specialized high schools where admission is determined by the SHSAT score that students get. Solely determined uh, that, by, like, like you get a certain grade, you're in, you don't, you're out. Right. That's, that, that is set by the state. Uh, it's interesting that it wasn't changed at all. It wasn't even an issue for the legislature uh, during the latest round. But what has changed are the screened high school admissions process, which now have uh, broader access than they had before. And um, some parents object because that, of course, for, for those parents who, who imagined that their children would get into a particular school based on a particular set of admission criteria, now that it's changed, their, their dreams that might not have been reality anyway uh, have now been crushed by this new, broader system of, of access. Less selective, I think, is the way to put it, but but still qualified students. Um, but but So that's the issue right now. Uh, Adams was put into a fix because he really didn't have enough time to change the de Blasio policy based on, you know, he came in in January and all of a sudden, you know, the, the admissions uh, time period had already been triggered. So uh, he may move backwards uh, to the old system. Uh, he may leave well enough alone. He seems to be making a big push for more specialized high schools. Um, and and that will be his his platform going forward, uh, rather, I think, than, than perhaps tweaking the screen school process that de Blasio changed. And it's interesting because he says with, with, with GNT programs generally, and I count the specialized high schools, I think as part of this, that he's moving away from a, a scarcity mindset. Um, but I think there's a serious argument that he's actually just increasing the resources within the same scarce mindset, um, which ha has ups and downs, but it, 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 there's, there's, there is some, I think, rhetorical uh, sleight of hand there. Um, before we run out of time, though, um, so so summarizing and looking forward, like, what do students need? What are they getting? Uh, right. Fill us in. So, so huge increase in um, summer programming, both on the recreational side, uh, with students need. It's the summertime um, as and it's safe to be outside. So let's get them outside as well as um, the kind of tutoring that might might uh, help recover from from pandemic uh, difficulties with instruction and learning. Uh, going forward, um, I, we're experiencing a lot of um, disciplinary issues in the schools. Uh, I, I've been in the schools. I've been talking to a lot of principals. Uh, there are fights, basically uh, fights that 
are based on outside situations, particularly social media. And then it's brought into the school and, you know, the the educators are uh, brought into this disciplinary process. Uh, so I, I I think we really do need it's 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 an cliche at this point, but we really do need to be dealing with social emotional learning and uh, and helping principals and helping teachers, not only through school social workers and and counseling to uh, make the school a, a welcoming place, a, a, a place where relationships, uh, you know, restorative justice is a good thing. It, restorative justice is, is about community building. Uh, it's not just a disciplinary practice. It's a community building practice. And, and that's going to get us out of some of these problems in the schools that are not learning issues, but are precedent to learning issues because students have to be ready to learn. They have to be coming to school. They have to be able to get along and they have to be able to respect their teachers. Uh, and, and and that's based on relationships. And, and I think um, that is the priority. It's, it's done through engaged learning uh, as much as anything else. That's you know, the best classroom management is engaged learning. And, and so, so the hope is that we can get away from Zoom and that we can get away from phones and have have like good classroom dynamics. That's my hope. Professor David Bloomfield, we've been overdue to have you on FAQ NYC. This, this is a perfect time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, I hope we'll talk again. Thank you, we will. FAQ. FAQ.NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics, online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and came to you this week from Brooklyn and Queens. A special thank you to our guest, David Bloomfield, Professor of Education, Leadership, Law, and Policy at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Grad Center. Our producer is Adam Kamara, who mixed and edited this episode. Be well, be cool, be kind, and we'll see you next week.